We're reading from John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, I want to start. Uh, I, I have a, a soft spot for this, this man. Um, there's a novelist, essayist named David Foster Wallace, um, who died a number of years ago. Um, I, probably the most challenging reading undertaking I've ever taken was at Josh White's. It's like the third time in the last month I've mentioned Josh asking me to read hard things and me usually not being up to the challenge. But he, he, we had a reading group on staff at Dorfop Southeast, and we read his gigantic tome of a novel, Infinite Jest. Um, and I, I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone. It's a very bleak book, very dark, very disturbing at times. Um, there's a lot of reasons not to like it, including the like uh, 100, 200 pages of footnotes that are integral to the story that he forces you to, end notes, actually, you have to turn to the back of the book to access, it, it's, it's a chore in many ways, but as, after I finally finished it, through the help of audiobooks and other stuff, um, it just struck me as, as one of the most profound things, oh, <laughs> thanks Vivian, I'd ever read, and it was just obvious to me that, that this guy, um, though he had many personal demons, though it sounds like he was, in many respects, uh, not a good person to a lot of people in his life. We don't have to paper over that. But he's also gifted with profound insight into the human condition, and much of which, of course, overlaps with what we um, understand as believers. Um, I've referenced this before, uh, you've probably heard this before, I'm get, or many of you probably have, but he gave uh, a commencement speech at Kenyon College one year, I think at what year was it, 2005, I have here in my notes, um, where he, I mean, you can go and listen to the audio on YouTube or whatever, it's been transcribed and turned into a little book, uh, but I just want to read a section from what Wallace has to say here in this, this speech. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. 
And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being forced out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. The whole thing is brilliant, but that nugget right there captures something essential. And of course, we would disagree with Wallace that, you know, uh, you know, these other God alternatives are just as, are, are functional in this way. We would say those would eat you up too if you're not actually in tune with, with the genuine God of the universe, the God that we know through Jesus. Um, but Wallace is arguing what many others have argued and do argue, that worship is inevitable. It's just an inevitable part of being a human, of being alive in this world. And here, Wallace, he doesn't give a precise definition, but he seems to define worship as, as sort of placing something in the central position of your life by which you derive meaning for your life. Um, and that's a good definition. I think that's, that captures a piece of the biblical definition, making something central, life-defining, meaning-deriving in your life. Some synonyms for worship are adoration, which is a deep love and affection. That's worship. Another one is reverence, a deep respect. Another is devotion, a deep loyalty and enthusiasm. And all these terms together kind of paint a picture for us of what we're talking about when we talk about worship. And it just seems, I, th I think you know this from your friends, your family members, your coworkers, whatever, if you've really observed people and the things that really make them tick in life, I think it comes, it's nearly impossible for people to not have some object of worship at the center. Something that does give meaning and purpose. Something that calls forth a response of these things. Adoration, love, affection, reverence, respect, devotion, loyalty, and enthusiasm. Something that if you don't have it, will threaten your ability to thrive, to thrive, or at least your perception of that ability. So if Wallace and countless others who've made this claim, this observation, are correct, if all people really are worshipers of someone or something, then that would affirm a deep, central claim of Christian truth. God created us this way. You weren't just created arbitrarily. You were created for a purpose, for many purposes, but the chief central organizing purpose is to know and to love and to worship this God who created you. Worship is central to your existence. I can say that definitively for everyone. If the scriptures are true, for you, whoever you are, whatever your story is, worship is central to your existence and central to your identity. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote in Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That we all have these longings that we just kind of get a little bit satisfied, but they're, they're pointing to something beyond. They're pointing to him, ultimately. So as Christians, we want, I hope you want, to become increasingly aware 
of this dynamic, of this truth. And if this is true, we don't just want to then worship, like stumble into worship haphazardly. Yeah, it's something I, I have a vague concept of it. And I know that when we show up to church and we, for some reason, like sing songs, that's worship in some sense. And I, you know, maybe you have a vague sense of like, and I think it's supposed to be bigger than that and more is going on. That's probably how most of us operate. We're just kind of like, yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, I don't know this is important. I'm not sure why. And I can't really put words to it. We don't, want to, we don't want that. I hope you don't want that. I hope that you want to walk into this. Um, to, we want to worship intentionally, thoughtfully, pointedly, in the direction of the triune God who is our worship's only worthy object. Um, and so to that end, we are starting, it's just, I think, six weeks we're going to be considering the idea of worship. We've titled the series, The Praises of His People, Practical Theology of Worship. So Why? Well, why is because worship is a way, it's a lens through which we can think about every single thing we do as Christians. Everything we do as Christians in response to our God is, a, is part and parcel of worship. It is a central umbrella under which everything else that we think about in the Christian life exists and rests. So we should come to the task with an understanding of what it is and why we're supposed to do it. So similarly, musical worship makes up one of the most prominent things that we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings, correct? I mean, you can reliably count, like, even last week, we didn't even have a sermon last week, but we had musical worship. Like, it is foundational to what we do here. Why? What? Why? Why do we sing? What is this that we're doing here? Do you have an, do you have an answer to that? Um, why do we sing songs together? What are we trying to accomplish? How do these songs relate to the other elements of our worship gatherings that we have, like communion and prayer and our just overall liturgy that we have here? And what is a worship gathering anyway? Like, what is this that we're doing, and why do we call it this? So pursuing some of this together will help us understand why we do what we do. It will maybe help us tweak some of what we do. Um, but ultimately, it's going to help us, I believe, I genuinely believe, commune. This is the important thing. Commune with this God. Commune with this God that we are pursuing more intimately through what we do here and through what we do outside the walls of this building. So that's the why. The what is six weeks exploring a biblical vision for worship from the big sweeping things. The first couple of weeks are kind of the big picture stuff. And then we're going to get into some nuts and bolts. Like, what about singing. Like, what is that? What do we do with our bodies in that moment? And so on and so forth. Hopefully, uh, by the end, you feel like we've got the big picture, but we've also got something very, very practical that we have our hands around that, that can change us and change what we do here for the better. So before we jump into the what's and how's of worship, the first thing we need to do, I think, is to consider the object of our worship. Um, who is the God of the Christian faith? And what makes him uniquely worthy of worship? Because we can start talking about what, you know, how to do things. But if we, if we miss him, um, we, we've missed the whole thing. And so that's, that's the aim for this morning, uh, to, to highlight the one who is worthy of this worship uh, and to start there. So uh, to do that, pr pray with me and, and pray for me um, as, we, as we consider this. God... Um, in some sense, this is what we do every week. We, we, we come to your word, uh, we let it set, set our agenda, and we, 
we find you, we, we learn about you, we discover you, we hear you in it. Um, every week, Lord, we want to lift high your glory. We want to provoke a, a worshipful response, but, but this morning in particular, we just, we want to very focusedly dwell on this question, why? Why are you worthy of praise? In what way? And we pray, Father, this wouldn't just be interesting, ah, huh, never thought about that that way kind of information. I suspect most of it won't be new at all. But we just want you supernaturally by the power of your spirit to give us the eyes to see your glory with fresh insight today. We want to fall more in love with you today. We want to trust you more today. We want our, our categories of who you are to be expanded, Lord. Not because of new information, Lord, but because of deeper, richer encounter with you. Help us, God. Help me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as a disclaimer, um, I, I, I know that not everyone in this room is going to believe uh, what I'm about to say. I know some of you in this room are self-consciously like dabbling in Christianity or you're like, ah, maybe, I'm not sure. Some of you are like, I don't believe this, but you know, you get free coffee here and that's cool. Um, and hey, we're so glad you're here if that's you. But I, I just acknowledge, I know that not everyone is going to agree with what I'm about to say. Fair enough. What I want to do is to try to capture just a bit of the flavor of how the Bible describes its God. And I'm not going to be arguing that, like, why you should believe this right now, necessarily. I'm mainly going to be argue, arguing why you should want to believe this. I hope at least, you know, wherever you're at, you'll go, that's a pretty good God that, that, that's on the, the pages of that fairy tale or whatever you think it is. That would be, actually be a beautiful and good thing if that was true. Uh, you, may have, you may say, I don't believe it, and that's fair. Um, my goal today is for all of us to want to believe this. <laughs> if that makes sense. So to consider the praiseworthiness of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, we could turn to countless biblical passages. You could preach this message from just about anywhere in the Bible. But I, I want to look at John 3:16 through 21, which Joe read for us, um, because it contains a description of God and his activity that I've always found especially powerful. And it, it seems like the world has as well. Like John 3:16, if, if you know a Bible verse... I'd say odds are, 90% chance, it's John 3.16. This verse has just like etched its way into the theological imagination of virtually everyone, um, and I think for good reason. But I want us to think about the praiseworthiness of God in this passage through four aspects of who he is, which make up two pairs of concepts that are in tension with one another. So we can, we can and should talk about these in isolation, but I think that the, the beauty of what the Bible's claiming about who God is is found in the tension between these ideas. Um, in most worldviews and religions, these qualities that are in tension with one another, they often cannot stand together and one ends up dominating and excluding the other. But in Christianity, I'm gonna, I, I hope you'll see, we find the God that we're longing for the one in whom these things hold together perfectly in his single essence, and it's such good news, friends. So I'm going to read the passage one more time and then look at these four characteristics and these two tensions. It says, this is the words of Jesus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, hopefully you'll see, see these, these qualities in, in the pages of, in the words of this text, but we can go ahead and put the first tension up there. The first tension we see in these two qualities here is that God is transcendent and that God is imminent. And I know that, that is, uh, that's theological language, it's philosophical language, it, it reads as very dry, but they're good terms. Hope you'll, you'll bear with them for a second. Here's what they mean. What John 3.16 and the rest of the scriptures is claiming is that, the, is that the God, who is the central character of their pages, is, he is transcendent. He is high above. He is beyond creation. He is, in some ways, inconceivable to us. He is high and lifted up. He is, he is just utterly unlike anything else we can conceptualize. That's the claim. I'm guessing that's not shocking to any of you. But next to that is the idea that at the very same time, in the very same God, he is also imminent. What that means is that he is intimately close. Intimately close. And those two things are not easy to hold together, radically transcendent and radically eminent, but that is what is being claimed here in this passage as well as in others. Let's first consider the transcendent glory of God. And we see that in this idea of God as the sending Father here, as the sending Father. I'll find my passage here. So, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He sent the Son into the world, not to judge the world. And so here's the idea that God is not operating from within creation itself. He is somewhere else. He is outside of this thing. He is the transcendent God of glory who is the creator of the world. He is distinct from the world. He's not part of it. And he is sovereign over the world. Again, to use, to use kind of a colloquialism, he is above and beyond the created order. He does not find his home here within it. He, he transcends it. He is gloriously greater. If he is the one who sends into the world, who created the world, who holds the world together, that means that for as expansive as our universe is, and we can hardly even comprehend, like modern physics and science and astronomy is helping us, but the numbers are so radically insane that like, the human brain can scarcely hold together just how large this thing is that we find ourselves in. So take all that as best you can, the width, the breadth of creation. Imagine how many planets there are made up of the amount of, with the same amount of detail that our planet here does, down to the microscopic level, down to the atomic level, the subatomic level. 
infinitely blown. Like planets that we can't imagine what's on them. We don't know what's out there. Maybe in eternity we'll get, a, we'll get to find out. But like every single thing, you look out at the night sky and you see the stars representing all these different solar systems. Like people, it's insane. And the biblical claim is that God himself holds that together by a word. He's got the whole world in his hand, as the children's song goes. Great song. He's, he just, he, sit, he, he whispers, and this thing roars, rages to life. And it doesn't just stay together, you know, because of happenstance. The biblical claim is that he is actively holding it together by the, by the purpose of his will. Whatever diversity and creativity and just amazing, awestruck stuff we see, he invented that. How glorious must this God be? And don't just think of the big picture. Think of the human relationships. Think of the fact that every single person on this planet is unique. No two people are exactly the same. No two people have the same story, the same personality. Some of us look awfully similar to one another. But, like, we are all unique individuals lovingly crafted by the same God who we're told knows every hair on our heads. The amount of human relational diversity that exists, he, too, is the author of that. He's the master artist behind all of it. I ask you again, if he can do this, how much gloriously greater is this God than anything we can conceive of? So he isn't found as one with creation. He isn't inside creation. He's gloriously greater, high above, transcends creation. And there's a mutated view of this. There's like this idea uh, isn't, the idea of God's transcendence isn't unique to Christianity. Lots of religions have it, but it often gets mutated into an idea. And you'll hear it in some kind of Christian, quasi-Christian sects, that God is so exclusively transcendent that he becomes unknowable. That he's so far above that to even try to describe him is to step into error, uh, to even try to put categories. So he just remains this like eternal mystery that we really can't gesture at. All you can do is say, I think there's something or someone out there. Um, And many religions have a view of transcendence that way. That's why this other part of this tension is so important. Because the biblical claim is not just that God is transcendent, though he is, it's that he's imminent. He is close. He is committedly close. He is relationally present. The God who is, has all this creative splendor, he creates the world, and he says, I will maintain relationship. Read those early pages of Genesis. See the intimacy, the conversational relationship that he has with these, the tiniest little specks, these people on this tiniest little planet in this infinite cosmos. He says, I'm going to remain close. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to nurture you. I'm going to partner with you. I'm going to invite you into my purposes. He is committedly close. He's relationally present. He's revelationally knowable. He's not the infinite mystery. He's given us a scripture that captures something, that reliably captures something of who he is. And then more than that, so that's, that we're just, if you just think purely of God the Father, he know, he's everywhere, he sees everything, he is relationally present to his, to his creation, he has committed himself to it, he is not so far off that he's unknowable. But then think about this, we just got done spending weeks thinking about this one. Another layer of his eminence comes into play when we consider the incarnation of Jesus, right? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, does break that creator-creation distinction, or at least subverts it in the most radical way, by coming into the story of creation. 
God sent his son into the world. Again, the son was outside the world. He is God. He is God. God the Son is God, and he was sent into the world to take on human flesh. We've used this illustration before. It's like a great poet or a great playwright writing himself into the play. It's like a great painter painting him or herself into the painting. It's just this category-breaking entry of something that's wholly other into this new thing. That's what happened that first Christmas. God is imminent. Secondarily, because he has become one of us. He took on flesh in second person, Jesus. He is forever our brother. He will remain a human, fully God and fully man into eternity future is what the scriptures claim. And then there's another layer as well. And I, gosh, we could spend months and months and months talking about all this, but I'll just give you one more briefly. It's not just God's covenant commitment to his creation. It's not just Jesus incarnating. But then what's the scandal of the church age? That he sends the Holy Spirit to what? To dwell inside of you. (laughs) To come inside anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. We are declared to be temples of his Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that same God comes in here to make a home, to transform us from the inside out, to make us part and parcel of his vision and his kingdom and his life. (laughs) It's it's insane. You may not believe it, but I want you to believe it. I want you to want to believe it. So God is transcendent. God is imminent. Mutated view of this imminence many religions have is, is kind of an exclusively imminent God who is so imminent and present in everywhere and everything in creation that he just is indistinguishable from the creation itself. Something like pantheism, where, yeah, the, the chalkboard is God, and that chair is God, and the shoe is God, and so on and so forth. That's not the claim. He is present everywhere. You could maybe say in some ways he's present in everything, maybe, you know, if you, if you clarify your terms a little bit. But he is not everything. He is God. But he did incarnate, and he does come to make a home inside of you. That doesn't mean you're God. That doesn't mean I'm God, but he comes to dwell within us. It is glorious, friends. That tension, that tension is unique. That tension is unique in this way, in the scope of worldviews, philosophies, religions. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. That's not the only tension I want to talk about. There's a second one. And that is that God is just. He's just. I don't mean like he's just what? He's a God of justice, a God of righteousness, a God of moral order, if you will. And he is gracious. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of long-suffering. So, first righteous God of justice. We see that in John 3.16 through the repeated mention of judgment. We're told Jesus didn't come to judge the world. Did you know that? That's good news. But he says, everyone already stands under judgment. We are already, we've already all lost the plot. We've already contributed to the mess that is the chaotic, sin-stained, violence-riddled, like, nature of life in this world. Our hands are already bloody. Our hands are already soiled. But Jesus came. The whole reason he sent God the Father from his place of transcendence, sent the Son into the world, was not to judge the world, was to save the world. 
was to save the world. But there is a judgment. There is a judgment. And I think, well, what is judgment? Judgment is the ability to make moral distinctions at a very, at a very basic level. It's to, to judge between two things. This one's right, this one's wrong. And God, if he is who he says he is, has a transcendent basis for making that judgment. He's the author of everything. Goodness, truth, is determined by him if he is who he says he is. So from that position, he can make moral distinctions, and more importantly, he can condemn the evil. He can condemn the wrong. He can say, this is good, this is bad, and I and not just condemn it, but do something about it. And I know Every time the word judgment comes out of a Christian's mouth, a pastor's mouth, some of you are like probably legitimately triggered, like, oh gosh, where's this going to go? What is he going to say? I don't like, some of you might be wanting to run for, the, run for the stairs. I understand that. We have negative associations with it because judgmentalism is sadly often a hallmark of at least American Christianity. I won't speak for Christianity around the world, but our, our brand, it's often ugly. This stuff can turn ugly. You think you're the moral exemplar, you, all this stuff. You think you've got the power of transcendent right and wrong. People can do ugly things with that. But, but, I just want to challenge, challenge this idea that this is purely negative because we, we frankly need this like water. We need, I, I'm convinced that we need God to be a God of justice if we're actually going to have like any hope in this world. Why would I say that? I've said this before, why wouldn't we just want a God who's just cool with everything, doesn't make moral distinctions, it's just like all, as we might think of it in our terms, all love, all mercy, you know, he never asks anybody to do anything they don't want to do, and so on and so forth, because just take that down the road a little bit. That's the same God who just has to kind of lovingly applaud the Holocaust. It's the same God who has to take, look at the worst abuse you've ever suffered, and just, oh, it's fine, it's fine. You don't want that God, friends. You don't want that God. You might think you do, but you don't. We need a God who can hate war and bloodshed, for example. We need a God who has the moral sophistication to condemn both the violence, for example, against the Israeli victims of the October 7th attacks and the violence against the Palestinian civilian victims that continue to mount up. It's turning out that's really hard in our culture to have compassion for both. We need a God who can. We need a God who doesn't play favorites. We need a God who doesn't turn a blind eye to deep evil in the world. We need a God who can look at the moral complexity of everything and speak intelligently into it from a place of authority and a place of goodness. A God who cannot or will not make moral distinctions, who is not committed to seeing righteousness win out, who won't finally restrain evil, is a horrific prospect. Especially if his vision for life is eternity. Just eternal suffering is what he would have on offer to you. People just doing whatever they want, no restraint, no condemnation. Oh my goodness. If we want justice, and I know most of us in this room do, that's a word that has become like deeply important to so many, especially in the last five years where we live here. Justice, justice, justice. We cry out for it. If you want that, if you want real justice, we need a God who can unshakably define it, call us to it, and bring it about. 
It's not going to happen any other way. The wheels of history have shown us that. We need a God who can speak into hearts broken by the gravest atrocities and say, my heart is broken too. And mine is broken far more than yours is. Mine is broken far more than yours is because he is more compassionate than us friends. So, we need God to be just. The, the, the opposite of that is a cosmic horror. And you might be sitting here going, well, I don't know if I like God's definitions of, of, judgment, as, uh, of righteousness as I understand them in the Bible. It's a conversation for another day. Let's start here. We need him to care. We need him to care if there's any hope. But a God who is only justice might be good news for like the inanimate cosmos, you know? Might be good news if he's all justice. He says, you, you, you transgress, you're done. I wipe you out of existence. You're, you're, you're done. That might be good for the animals. Legitimately, it might be good for the animals. Might be good for the planet. Might be good for inanimate cosmos. But it's not good for people. Because, again, if we're honest, we know we've transgressed his vision of goodness somewhere. We have hurt people. We have perpetuated injustice in small and big ways. We have hearts that at times love, love what is evil if it's in our interest. Noah's biblical term for this, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The devastating reality that logically follows here is that if God is going to remove all sin and evil one day, that means he's going to have to remove me. That's the truth. But he's not only just. He's not only just. He is also gracious and merciful. Without confusion and without contradiction, without one trampling the other, somehow he is fully just and he is fully gracious. This passage tells us he came to offer the forgiveness of sins. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know what that, you know, you know who can do that? Anybody can believe in him. There's no moral bar to clear. There's no performance issue. There's no performance review that you have to succeed at for him to offer this to you. It's simply trust. And the reasons for that are complicated. I think we talk about it enough. We're not going to get fully into it. But he has chosen in his grace to say, the only requirement is that you just trust me. That's it. Receive the gift that I've already paid for, that I've already offered. He freely chooses to offer salvation. And he accomplished that through the cross. He offers the forgiveness of sins, that when we come to fact, like, I need a God of justice, but if he is that way, that's bad news for me on some level. He deals with that. He says, I will pardon you. I forgive you. I will grant you the righteousness of Jesus and make all your sin paid for via what he did on the cross, the great glorious exchange. And not just that, his grace extends. It's not just like, okay, I'll forgive you. You're kind of at net neutral. I'm going to instate you into my family, give you a, a place at the table in my glorious family. I will call you a daughter. I will call you a son. I will make you mine, never to remove you. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, he declares. More than that, 
He offers to work within us. That's part of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us. He will actually change you over time, if you will yield to him, if you will let him, into the kind of person that is actually a source of love and joy and goodness and peace and mercy and forgiveness and grace and all these beautiful things. We will look more like him if we will let him over time. That's an act of grace as well. And, and the, the phrase here in John 3.16, also eternal life. That all these promises, as good as they are, the claim is, again, believe it, don't believe it. This is the claim. You should, be, you should want to believe it, is that these will never be taken away. That this life is eternal. That even death, that, 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 that horrific specter that bears down on all of us, we're either afraid of it or we've just grieved someone who's gone through it, even it won't get the last word. But life will swallow it up. Life will swallow it up. Life has swallowed it up in Jesus already. And what is true of him, the resurrected Jesus, will be true of you if you put your trust in him. Four qualities, and there's more in these verses, but we see these here. And two tensions. God is transcendent. He is high above, but he is close. He is as close as your own self. Close, nearer than your own thoughts. He is imminent. God is just. He can and does make real, genuine, moral decisions, and he will bring about genuine justice in the world. But he is also gracious. He has done everything to the point of the death of his own son to bridge that divide and to bring us close. He asks no performance of us, There's no CV we have to present. There's no resume that has to be good enough. As a free act, even on our worst days, he says, I offer this to you. Come home. Come home, son and daughter. In summary, this is the God we've waited for, friends. This is the God we've waited for. I don't know how you can look out at the world, the real world we live in, and then look at who this God is in the midst of it and not cry out like the words of Isaiah chapter 5, 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, and we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is who we need, friends. He needs to be transcendently powerful enough to do what he wants to do, but he has to be close enough to not forget about us. He has to be just, but he has to be gracious if there's any hope for us. He has to be both of those things. And he is. He is. He is. That's why we sing about the cross every week. That's why we talk about the cross every week. It's on the cross that we see all of this most clearly. Transcendent God come into human flesh, fully just, willing to die to be the sacrificial payment for the sins of the world, and yet doing it for you and for me that we might not have to bear it. This is who he is. And if that's who he is, if that's who he is, then that means, that means He is worthy of your worship, and he is worthy of your praise. In his book, uh, Praying the Psalms, Thomas Merton, uh, a Catholic thinker, he said, it is quite possible, he's writing about the Psalms, but you could put worship, you could sub in worship, because the Psalms are a a hymnal, they're a worship guide and a prayer guide. Um, He says, it's quite possible that our lack of interest in the Psalms conceals a secret lack of interest in God. 
For if we have no real interest in praising him, it shows that we have never realized who he is. For when one becomes conscious of who God really is, then one realizes who, that he who is almighty and infinitely holy has done great things for us. The only possible reaction to that is the cry of half-articulate exultation that bursts from the depth of our being in amazement at the tremendous, inexplicable goodness of God to men. So what then is worship? Let me give you a very simple definition and then a more complicated one. First, very simply, worship is just a response to an encounter with this God. First encounter, it's to see this God, to encounter his truth, to encounter his presence, to encounter his goodness, to encounter his love, and then to respond, to give him what he's worth. And of course, none of us can fully give him what he is worth, but to give as much as we possibly can in response. That's it. That's it. Encounter and response. Lost my notes here. Forgot to staple these, so bad news for you. <laughs> Worst news for me. I have to look like a paper-shuffling fool up here. Here's the more thorough definition. This is, this is something I've synthesized, and this might change over the course of this series. I'm, I'm learning alongside all of you. Here's a starting place. We can put it up there. Worship is the proper, sincere, and joyful, whole person, and all of life response to the gloriously beautiful nature and activity of the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the proper response we give. It's sincere. It's not worship if it's not sincere, and man, it's meant to be joyful. And it involves your whole person, every part of you, and all of life. It's what we do when we see him his gloriously beautiful nature and activity. So in the weeks to come, we're going to consider various elements and aspects of worship and the all-of-life response to him. Um, But today, reminded of these incredible truths from this incredible passage, may we try, may may we start here. If this is who he is, may we respond. And whatever that looks like for you, I'm not, I, I can't say, but we're going to have time here to sing, to take communion, to pray, to cry, to bow, to lift your hands, to stand, to be still, to be quiet, to dance, whatever, whatever. Just, just respond as honestly as you can to who he is and to what he's done. And he will be pleased with this time. Amen? All right, pray with me.